Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Juan Verde to the show. Juan Verde is an internationally renowned strategist for both the public and private sectors, with a particular focus on sustainable economic development. His specialty is designing innovative strategies to attract investment, accelerate economic development, and support strategic alliances. Within the political arena, Mr. Verde was a Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute Fellow during his early career and has worked to mobilize the Latino community in support of political candidates and issues. Most recently, he supported the 2020 Biden-Harris campaign through his work with the campaign's National Finance Committee and Presidente Finance Council as a founder of Americans Abroad for Biden, as a board member of the Latino Victory PAC, and as a member of two campaign policy committees. Mr. Verde's policy and private sector experiences have dovetailed in his efforts to promote sustainable global business practices and leadership development. He was a key advocate of Vice President Gore's The Climate Reality Project and helped create its Spain and Argentina branches. Most recently, he was selected as one of the world's 100 most influential Latinos in the fight against climate change in 2019 and 2020, and was featured at the UN Climate Conference COP25 in 2019. Juan, how are you doing today? Good. Great to be here, Raj. Juan, great to have you here. And could you please share with the audience where you're currently located? I'm actually calling in from a town in the northwestern part of Spain called Orense in the region of Galicia. This is uh, very close to the Portuguese border. And how's the weather in there? How's the weather in Spain? Spring is finally coming, my friend. So it, it feels great after a tough, tough winter. And how long have you been there? I just arrived yesterday. I usually live in Washington, D.C., but my kids live here in Spain, so I try to come as much as I can. Well, I appreciate you pushing through the jet lag for us. <clears throat> a pleasure. So Juan, I'd like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Well, <laughs> um, I don't know whether uh, there's something interesting about me, but I do believe I probably have a very unique life story. One which is, if I think about it, probably only likely to, to happen in the United States. Um, I say that because I was born and grew up in the Canary Islands. This is an archipelago of the coast of West Africa, which actually belongs to Spain. From the first college graduate in my entire family. And, uh, you know, like the story of so many immigrants, I moved to the United States at a very, very early age when I was 15 years old by myself and actually without speaking a word of English. And uh, only in America, I ended up 
graduating from some of the top universities in the country. I ended up working for three presidents of the United States, President Clinton, President Obama, and more recently, President Biden. God, it's, 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 it feels great to say that, President Biden, <laughs> um, and, and many other global leaders from around the world. So I think, you know, in essence, my story is the story of so many immigrants like myself who came to the United States and were welcomed and were helped by friends, mentors, role models. I've just been very lucky. So I think, again, my story is a story of um, gratitude, passion, and um, wanting to give back. Have you um, watched the Broadway play Hamilton? I have. I have indeed. And I really enjoyed it. You it know, was... there's, that, there's that one line, immigrants will get the job done. <laughs> well, I, you know, I remember when I uh, heard that quote, and, uh, uh, you know, a friend of mine used to say that if you want something to be done, give it to the busiest person, you know, mm-hmm. and to some extent that's similar. Immigrants come to our country hungry for opportunities. So, yes. Well, you're speaking to an immigrant too, and I've been very fortunate to have a great life here in Dallas, and I've been here about 30 years, and I feel the same as you do. And you mentioned gratitude and mentorship, and you know, I, 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 I'm so grateful to the mentors that I've had on my journey too, so I can really relate to what you're saying. But let's double-click on that, you know, that moment there you mentioned regarding coming to the country, going to college, and ending up working for three different presidents. Can you share a little bit about that journey? Well, I was um, very fortunate to to be given the opportunity to get involved early on in politics at the local level in Boston, in the city of Boston. And I was when I was going to college, I was working uh, for a campaign um, of a great man um, by the name of Ray Flynn, Mayor Flynn, back in the early '90s. And then one thing led to another. I um, after President Clinton won. Back in 92, the mayor of Boston ended up going uh, to the Vatican as the U.S. ambassador there, and he helped me find a job uh, in Washington, D.C. That was the beginning of my political career, if you will. I ended up working for the chairman of the DNC of the Democratic Party, who a few months later became Secretary of Commerce and then ended up working for him as a political appointee, young political appointee in the early 90s. And... um, and after that, I, whenever the Republicans won, I would go to the private sector. And when the Democrats won, I would come back into government. So it's been a, a fun ride of public, private sectors coming in and out of it. And if you were to give you know, one or two lessons, perhaps, that you've learned on your political career, what would they be? You know, uh, two things come to mind. One, I truly believe that most elected officials, most politicians are good people. I think their their heart is in the right place. And I know that's probably not popular to say, and a lot of people think that if you're a politician, politician you must be corrupted or you must be someone who doesn't have um, good intentions. And I think that's sad because the most important thing you can do to change the world is either run for office or vote for someone who's brave enough to run for office. So to me, that that's uh, something that is not perhaps intuitive, but I, th- I truly believe that to be to be the case. Um, and, you know, and the second lesson is that um, not everything is acceptable in politics. I think it's perfectly fine to say no, to walk away. Um, and I've encountered a lot of people that 
um, didn't really understand that. They, they thought that power was something they needed to maintain uh, as long as they could. So while I do say that most politicians are, are great people, um, I also think that others are not. <laughs> and power <laughs> does, does corrupt. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that regarding politicians. I was having a conversation with someone very close to the family family recently, and I was having the same conversation because they were talking about headlines regarding, you know, some particular politician. And I said, look, that person really believes in their heart of hearts that they're doing the right thing for their constituents. And whether you like it or agree with it is a totally different point. And the fact that the media perhaps chooses to, you know, headline sell, so demonize or perhaps portray the individual in a negative light. But, you know, that person just believes that they're doing what's right for them, their constituents and their country. So I, I would agree with you on that point. Absolutely, Raj. I mean, at the end of the day, we you don't have to agree with their views, with their political ideology. Um, but I do believe that even if, uh, you know, you're a Democrat and the other person is a Republican, for the most part, they do believe they're doing the right thing. And, um, you know, you really have to love what you do in order to be able to work sometimes 18, 20 hours, 20 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days. When you're an elected official, you have no personal life. And, and again, I don't think you would do that uh, for the money you get paid. You do it because you think you're making a difference. Totally agree. So going back to the private sector for a moment, can you give the audience an overview of the Advanced Leadership Foundation and your role at the organization? Yes. Uh, you know, this, uh, I do a lot of different things and I'm very involved in different activities. But the work I am absolutely in love with, the one I'm most passionate about, is actually um, the foundation work. Six years ago, uh, with, the, with the help of a number of friends, I helped create a non-for-profit foundation called the Advanced Leadership Foundation. We are now in 10 different countries around the world, despite only being six years old. And we have trained over 10,000 people <clears throat> in the last five years. We basically work with governments, institutions, non-for-profits, and private foundations around the world to identify and train the next generation of committed green leaders men and women who want to work changing the world and people who um, want to become agents of change in their own communities. They work hard to make the world a more sustainable and responsible place for everyone. And so what the foundation does is once we identify them is to train them and give them the proper tools for them to go back to their communities and become ambassadors or influential individuals in their own countries and communities and help us raise awareness about climate change and sustainability practices. But perhaps more importantly, we do it from, from, a, from a private sector um, angle. And by that, I mean that we are out there promoting and talking to people as to why it makes sense for companies to be sustainable. Yes, it does make ethical and moral sense for companies to do the right thing, but we're absolutely convinced that acting green, doing the responsible, sustainable, um, right thing to do makes, first and foremost, economic sense. And, and that's, that's our mission. And what kind of training does it provide? Is there a framework or a curriculum? Yes. Yeah, so, so basically, great question, because we are not an academic 
or um, uh, a university type of organization, we look for people that have shown leadership potential and want to change the world. Uh, and then we bring them to the United States to gain valuable work experience for a period of time. So if we find, let me give an example, and this is actually a true story. I was talking to a young girl from Mexico um, some time ago, and uh, I'll never forget that day because she actually comes from one, one of the indigenous communities in a region called Chiapas. Chiapas is in the southern part of Mexico, and it's probably one of the poorest regions in Latin America. Now, she had graduated top of her class in economics from a local university, a place called Tuscla Gutierrez, but she had never left her state in her entire life. Um, we gave her a scholarship to come to Washington, D.C. and work at the World Bank and gain valuable work experience there. She ended up working um, in the microfinance department of the World Bank when she finished her stay in D.C., she was offered a job doing sustainable microfinancing in Chiapas to the indigenous communities back in her country. So, so those, you know, and you see how we were able to sort of close that circle. We found someone with great potential. We gave them experience, tools. And then while they are in D.C., they go through a very rigorous leadership training program, soft skills. We teach them how to become better at presenting information, um, at communicating complex thoughts and ideas, and of course to um, uh, generate trust with uh, the people they talk to. And then we send them back to their countries. So um, it, it's wonderful work, and, and I'm very excited about uh, the progress we've had in the last six years. That really is a beautiful story. Is there an application process? We actually, yes and no, because what we do uh, as a foundation is that I travel around the world and I meet with governors, mayors, or private foundations for them to provide scholarships for the young professionals that uh, we end up bringing into the United States. So yes, there is an application process, but it's usually only in those countries where we operate and only through their local governments. That's a very interesting model. So the local government or the individual that you meet with has a process in their country and then they identify a student or two to send to the program? Correct. So that's basically how it works. We, we, close, we work very closely with, in the case of Mexico, as I mentioned before, and we're now trying to open up an operation also in India. So we work with the local authorities. Uh, they provide the funding and we basically uh, provide them with the turnkey service Together, we find those people that we want to bring to the United States to gain experience here. Um, and then once we find them, it's a turnkey. We pick them up at the airport. We find housing for them. We uh, find uh, a placement. Um, and uh, we take care of everything from A to Z until the day they go back. And we bring them with a J-1 visa, which is a practical training visa. And we do this, obviously, because... Uh, it does not allow them to stay in the United States after the training program. They have to go back to their countries. And that's one way also, obviously, to avoid, um, you know, the brain drainage that ends up happening in, in a lot of these places. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's very, very interesting. So you mentioned the private sector, and I know you do a lot of advising and consulting work through Alamo Solutions. Can you share some information regarding Alamo? Absolutely. You know, I, I'm, I'm so fortunate. I, 
I always say that uh, I get to pay. I get paid to do something I absolutely love. Uh, in the private sector, what we do as a company is that we partner with other private companies around the world, with institutions and governments, to help them make more money by becoming more sustainable. So I basically get paid to help them devise their own unique strategies and projects that can help them identify economic opportunities and allow them to to do this magic thing that is do good by doing well um, or do well by doing good. It depends how you, how you see it. In other words, I think what I'm trying to say is that we, we are always helping companies um, invest in sustainability-related projects, whether it's helping an old abandoned mine in Colombia. That's actually a project I'm working on right now where they are they are reinventing themselves to actually use their old leftover already processed residual minerals that they had worked with uh, 20, 30 years ago before the mine was closed. And that was actually left over there before um, the Canadian company abandoned the mine, uh, the mine. And we're helping the local community now to actually recycle the, um, the minerals. And uh, in the next six months, they're going to be exporting rare earths and critical mm-hmm. minerals to a number of countries around the world. So basically, they're getting paid um, to recycle the old minerals. So from that to helping an oil and gas company design an investment strategy that will allow them to transition into renewable energies and clean tech. So those are the types of projects that I work on. So if you can, can you walk me and the audience through perhaps a first meeting with one of these companies to where you're essentially trying to you know, persuade them to do the right thing? You know, its case is absolutely different. Sometimes we get called in when they when the opportunity has been identified and they just need a strategy or a strategic partner to help them get the project um, off the ground, up and running. But for the most part, if I had to walk you through, I would say that the first thing we do is work with our partners there to diagnose the problem or the opportunity, and, and, and that's usually what we prefer to do. We, we try to um, work with people to understand that it makes, as I mentioned before, it makes perfect economic sense to actually um, work on sustainable issues or sustainability as a comparative advantage. Why? Because when you do that in a lot of these companies, what you do is you end up creating the right conditions for innovation and entrepreneurship to flourish. And when that happens, most companies become a lot more competitive, um, a lot more profitable, and they actually end up, again, doing good and doing well at the same time. Because the strategy at that point is not just to make money, is to understand that, at least for us in our company, we always say that for a company to be sustainable, they need to understand that it's always better to make a lot of money for a very long time and not just make money for a very short period of time. Uh, That's what sustainability means. It's not just a vision from, you know, uh, um, an environmental perspective. Being sustainable means doing the right thing for everyone for a very long time. So that, you know, without telling you specifically how, you know, walking you through, a lot of, uh, you know, most of the time we, we get called in 
to come in and work with either a local company that is trying to reinvent itself or a company that is trying to diversify. Um, or perhaps uh, just for a company that wants to do the right thing but doesn't really understand how. I love the idea of positioning a company with sustainability as a comparative advantage. I'm sure that's get, that gets their attention. It does because because at the end of the day, you know, it's um, it's a lot easier for these companies to think positive and and to be optimistic about the future if they have people working with them and for them that believe in what they're doing. And so in a lot of these communities, uh, in some of these emerging markets, emerging countries, what we do there is um, change people's lives, get them to be proud about the work they're doing and, and to understand that they're not just coming to work every day to make money, they're coming to work every day, of course, to feed their families, but at the same time, um, understanding that they're making a difference, they're, making, they're having an impact in the world. Absolutely. Now, last year, for the second year in a row, you were named as one of the 100 Latinos most committed to climate action for the second consecutive year, like I said, um, which leads to my next question, which is the why behind what you do. You mentioned you know, your immigrant story, Canary Islands to America, and then working for the administrations. But this passion, this drive for sustainability that you said now, fortunately, and like me too, we get paid to do what we love to do. But what's your why? What drives you? What you know pushed you in this direction? Um, I, think, I think what drives me the most is that notion I just talked about um, of doing well by doing good. It is such a simple but so powerful. It's an idea that, again, it's powerful and simple, but I truly believe that companies don't have to choose between saving the planet and making money. Um, that is, the, at the end of the day, we, we try to get them to see that it's not one thing or the other, and that is so much better for everyone involved in, the, in that ecosystem um, when they do both. When they make money, they, re, they, they remain competitive, but at the same time, they make a difference, become more sustainable more responsible with the environment because they have to go hand in hand. So I think what drives me um, is that um, understanding that saving the planet is not just the right thing to do, as I mentioned before, from an ethical and moral standpoint, but that that is many times a great, huge opportunity. And, and that's, uh, to me, uh, extremely, extremely important. And of course, I, I don't think I can answer the question of, of what drives me without um, talking about my two young kids. They are by far <laughs> the, um, the most important people in my life. They make me a better person, a better dad, a better citizen. Um, they make me think about the legacy uh, I hope to leave behind one day when I'm not here. And um, But they also remind me of why it's so important to fight for the planet now before it's too late. That's the, that's the one thing that drives me every day to um, try to go that extra mile. You know, likewise, when it comes to children, I'm trying to do the same thing for my daughters. But you said saving the planet, and when you said it twice in a row, I heard an inflection and enthusiasm in your voice. So I'm going to assume, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you felt this way even prior to having children. Where does this desire to save the planet come from? You know, um, yes. I mean, with a last name like Verde, which means green, 
I think I was uh, destined to end up working in this area. I um, uh, started working back in the early 2000s by, for Al Gore after he left government. And I helped him establish a number of chapters of his non-for-profit organization that is called the Climate Reality Project. And, um, and I think that's, that's what really got me um, to become passionate about this. But, um, you know, um, I remember the story about the, the work I did with, uh, with Al Gore. And to me, that was kind of a, uh, an aha moment, a surprise. Um, it, as I mentioned, I was working with Al Gore and we were traveling throughout Latin America uh, raising money to uh, open up chapters of his climate reality project. And, you know, it was one day when I heard him speak to one of those sold out crowds um, and he was talking, you probably remember this documentary, it was called The um, Inconvenient Truth. Mm-hmm. And I remember how upset people were after uh, listening to Al Gore speak. But at the same time, I became so disappointed at the fact that they were not willing to change their behavior. They were not willing to vote differently or to do anything drastically different, despite the fact that they understood the problem. They understood how dire the situation was for the planet. And, uh, man, was I, was I wrong? Because I thought, hey, if we just go to the CEOs, if we just talk to elected officials, if we just tell consumers how important it is that they get involved and they, they do more, you know, they'll, they'll do it. But no, I was absolutely wrong. And I remember talking to Al Gore about this after his presentation. And he said to me something that I'll never, never forget. He said, um, um, he said, Juan, um, people, it's very hard for people to change their opinion about a particular situation if their economic well-being depends on that situation not changing. And to me, that was it. You know, I went, aha. And from that day on, I, I changed my approach. I decided, I decided to, to start talking not about how bad the situation was, not about what we were doing to the planet and how bad we were. I started talking to CEOs and to companies about how much better it would be for companies and individuals to do things in a better way, about how much more money they could make about how much better it would be for their communities, about how they could make a difference and be a lot more competitive. And, and I saw something click after that. So um, to me, that, that was it. That's what, that was what um, was that big moment for me. Obviously, I had been an environmentalist for most of my life, but it was my work with Al Gore that... Um, uh, that did it for me. Uh, after that, I decided that I wanted to spend the rest of my life working um, to change the world in a positive manner and to try to do as much as I could to uh, leave a better planet for my kids. So that story brings home why you approach companies with competitive advantage. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where I saw it. I saw the opportunity. And then we started you know, showcasing examples of companies that were doing the right thing. And we're able to actually uh, generate more jobs, be more competitive. They were investing in technology and innovation. They were creating wonderful places that people wanted to go to 
work and develop their careers in. And I saw it. I saw that that made a difference, um, you know, where, uh, you know, companies were actually able to, to yes, to make money, but um, always thinking long term. And that was just a, a much better approach. Absolutely. So earlier I mentioned the award, you know, the 100 Latinos most committed to climate change. How have you seen climate change or sustainability talked about in the, the Latin community? You know, good question. Um, I'm afraid that it is not talked about in our community, in the Latinx community. The numbers are, are concerning, to say the least. I recently read an article which said that uh, only 5% of the staff or people that work for sustainability-related organizations in the United States are Latinos. So only 5%. And yet we represent, depending on what state, but in California, we represent over 30, 30%, 40% in some counties, um, 30% of the population, and yet we only represent 5% of the people working in that sector. And when you actually look at the numbers, uh, when it comes to um, boards uh, of sustainability, green funds, uh, green institutions and non-for-profits, that number goes down to 1% to 2%. So that's part of the problem. We're not talking about it as much as we should, particularly because climate change affects in a very disproportionate way the members of our, of our community. And those are the people that are actually on the front lines and are suffering uh, from this existential global threat. So um, I hope I've answered your question. We're not talking as much as we should. Well, let me follow up that question. Why do you think that is? I have my own perhaps hypothesis, but I'm curious to know what you think. You know, um, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I do have a hypothesis, and, and that is that you tend to surround yourself with people you know, people you trust, people that perhaps come from your community. And when one or two percent of the board members of these organizations um, are with when only one or two percent of the board members are Latinos, it's not a surprise to me that we don't have enough representation. When you are the CEO of one of these organizations and you look around and the people you know and the people you work with and the people you interact with are all people that look like you. Uh, and that think like you and that come from the same universities and colleges that you come from, you are missing out. You're leaving a huge um, opportunity behind because, again, if the people that are being affected the most are precisely the people in the communities of color, then you should have more people um, from those communities working with you and allowing you to identify the problems and come up with solutions. I agree with your hypothesis, and you know, I might be off course here, but there's one other thing that I'd like to add too. And um, I'm telling you, as an Indian, what I found is that society. So the Latinos that I've been around, they remind me of you know my Indian relatives. It's a very collective society, and you know the joke amongst Indians is that you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or engineer because there's financial security and to some extent societal security in those you know perhaps three um, professions but if a 
you know, kid in the community says, you know, I want to go off and perhaps save the planet. The concern is, look, we worked so hard to get you here to this country, perhaps, or, you know, your family is perhaps not financially well off. How are you going to feed yourself and your family if you go off saving the planet? So I personally, you know, part of my hypothesis, there's some of that um, overhang or residue in that conversation too. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and uh, I also like that idea you shared about how similar to some extent the Indian and the Hispanic community are, uh, how, how much importance they give to close relationships, to family, and to making sure that you do better than the previous generation and that you give your kids the best possible opportunities. So there's a lot, to, there's a lot to be said about that because you end up wanting your kids to become lawyers, to become bankers, uh, doc, um, you know, to do anything that will obviously earn a high salary. But the world and the economy will be a low emissions economy in the future. This is an issue of speed not direction. And I say that because I am absolutely convinced that when you think about the professions of the future, we should be talking about uh, clean technology. We should be talking about renewable energies. We should be talking about clean tech. And we should be talking about where the jobs of the future will come from. I am absolutely convinced that this is going to be a very, very vibrant uh, sector and part of our economy. So if you had, let me say, two megaphones, one where you can talk to perhaps the more mature, older Latin community, and one where you could speak to college age, what are the two different, perhaps, statements you would give those different uh, constituents? Huh. Um, you know, I, uh, I would probably say the same thing to both, just in a different way. I would say to them that if you want to make a difference and you want to change the world, there are two things that you could and, and, and should be doing. Um, I would tell them that those two things are uh, buying right and voting right. Um, I would tell them that they should be thinking about who they vote for carefully and that they should also be thinking about who they buy from very cautiously. So I would tell them to, again, just think of think about the fact that they have the power. Um, what do I mean by that? If you buy from companies and individuals that are willing to contribute in a positive manner to the world we live in, to saving the planet, that they are responsible with the environment, you're making a difference, a huge difference. And if you end up voting for those elected officials who understand science and choose to make decisions, um, thinking about the next generations and not just about the next elections. That's how you change the world. So to the older crowd, I would tell them, be proud if your son or your daughter wants to join this revolution because it is a revolution and we're trying to change the world, but also because the opportunities will be there. Uh, and if they're young, I would say the same thing. Make a difference, get involved. If you don't like what you see, change it. And if you don't like the elected officials you have, run for office yourself. I love the idea of be proud. I think, again, speaking about our communities being collective, I think pride is a, plays a very, very important role. And the 
thing you mentioned regarding the you know the Indians and the Mexican and Hispanic communities. I read a book, great book called uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by a gentleman, Jared Diamond, many, many years ago. And he actually spoke about how the communities in South America were actually from the Indian subcontinent. And they walked across the Siberian land bridge through North America to South America. Very, very interesting. And you also see that even in Spain, where uh, people think that the gypsy community, um, you know, flamenco and all these cultural traits of, of, of the Spanish culture come from Spain. But the truth of the matter is that they actually come from India. And I'm not sure whether you actually knew that, but there's a lot, a lot written about that. Yes, I actually studied uh, Middle East history in my college, and I know the Ot- Ottoman Empire spread through to the south of Spain. Exactly, exactly. And um, so the gypsy communities in, in Spain um, that are so important because of, of the music and the art and the culture and even the language. And, and very few people know that we actually come from, from the northern part of India. Yep, absolutely. So earlier you shared some lessons regarding politics, but you know you said you've been on this journey, I'm going to just ballpark it, since 2004, so about 17 years. What are some of the most valuable lessons that you've learned about yourself? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. A very good question. To be honest with you, I've never thought about that. Um, I've learned two things. I think I've learned that I have to be willing to allow others to join me in this journey and, and to stop thinking that I alone can do this. I think I, you know, that, that was a lesson I learned within six months in this, in this learning journey. I, I used to think that, again, as I, you know, the example I gave you before, I thought that, he, that if I traveled to foreign countries and I spoke to elected officials and CEOs there and I told them about the problem that they would not only understand it, but would actually help me do something about it. And I, I, I understood that that was not the right thing to do. It was not the right way to go about it. Um, I, I thought that, you know, one thing I learned about myself is that I'm a better, better leader when I empower others to see the problem, but more importantly, to be able to design the solution and then bring people in their own communities together. So um, to me, that was, that was a huge lesson. Um, I thought I knew it all. I thought I was smart enough to come up with solutions. And then I realized that not only did I not have the right solutions, it wasn't even up to me to design the solutions. Um, nine out of 10 times the solutions were there within the communities we were working with. So um, that, that would be one lesson. And secondly, you know, I learned that better is good. What do I mean by that? You know, uh, many times I thought that we had to get everything right, perfect, and get it done very, very quickly. And that was a recipe for disaster um, because it's pretty much impossible. You know, when working with communities, CEOs, and companies that want to make a difference, at the end of the day, to me, it's important that they understand that even if they are able to progress and improve their situation uh, 10, 20%, that's also good. It's not necessarily a failure. Um, Yes, we have to do a lot more. Yes, a lot remains to be done. 
but we have to start somewhere. So that's that. That was a humbling um, lesson for me that you cannot get done. You cannot get everything done by tomorrow. You have to start somewhere, and that takes time. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, which is, um, "Slow progress is better than no progress." Uh, that's a very eloquent way of summarizing and saying and saying what I just trying to communicate <laughs> in so many words. Thank you. <laughs> of course, of course. I love it. The power so, of words. I know, right? So um, going back to Advanced Leadership Foundation for a moment, you know, you mentioned several countries around the world. Let's say it's 2030. What's the vision for that organization? Um, you know, I, uh, I'm so optimistic about the future. And I know that sounds to some people romantic or, or even stupid, but, but I say this with a big smile. Um, you know, and as I said before, I know it's not going to be easy. The road is going to be long and difficult. Uh, we're going to have to work very, very hard to win this fight against climate change. And I would even argue that even if we did everything right, um, as called for by the Paris Accord, we would still not make it, at least not on time, for the reversible consequences that climate change would most likely bring about. But there's so many reasons to be optimistic about. I look around and I see, for example, how President Biden was able to just a few days ago pass a $1.9 trillion stimulus package that calls for the greatest investment in research and development, innovation, clean technologies in an unprecedented way. We've never invested so much money in such a short amount of time in very specific strategic sectors of our economy. And that's what he's calling for in the next four years. When um, I look around and, uh, and I see that the United States is finally leading the world or beginning to lead the world, lead, uh, lead the world um, in that area, it's something that makes me very optimistic. Um, the fact that we are now in the United States wanting to become zero emissions and carbon neutral by 2050, and knowing as I know, because I'm very involved in this issue, that for that to happen, we'll have to be bold, we'll have to be brave, we're going to have to be willing to be creative and, and, and come up with ideas that are going to be, you know, groundbreaking and, and, and game-changing, that that should be something to be proud of and, and be optimistic about. Uh, but even when I look at what's happening in the private sector, that's also, I think, a reason to be optimistic about what's going to happen in the next 10, 20 years. You know, there are companies out there that, are you know talking about innovation and, and, and they're talking about incorporating technology to rise up to the opportunity and come up with solutions to fight climate change. And a lot of them are, are um, actually wanting to become safe emissions, carbon neutral by 2050. I look at what's happening in Europe right now. You know, yes, we are coming up with this huge investment plan to get ourselves back on track. But if you look at Europe, there are a lot of reasons there to be very optimistic about. In Europe, they are very involved in their own economic recovery plan, which is actually uh, greener than ever before. What they're actually saying in Europe right now is, you know, if we're going to 
we're going to if we're going to have to bail out the tourism industry, for example, and we're going to give them public funds, let's make sure that the money does come with certain strings attached, so that you know when when new hotels are being built with with public funds, let's make sure that they are fully energy efficient. Let's make sure that they incorporate concept of the circular economy. Um, if we're going to have to bail out the airline industry, for example, let's make sure that we give airlines um, a time frame to transition out of fossil fuels and into clean fuels over a period of time. So um, let's make sure that the that companies invest in, in uh, clean technologies. And, and so, yes, I'm, I'm extremely, extremely excited about the future. I think this pandemic has given us an opportunity to um, hit the reset button in, in many aspects, um, be able to do things better. You know, I love that quote from President Biden, it's rebuild better. But that's, that's the opportunity. We have to be optimistic if we see companies that are looking at reinventing themselves, regardless of policy requirements or what the legislation or regulation says. A lot of these companies are moving up their timelines to meet their future sustainability goals. So that's exciting, you know. It comes to mind, obviously, BlackRock, the largest private equity fund in the world. I believe they manage over $7 trillion in assets around the world. And they have chosen to invest only in companies and projects that have a positive impact in society and the planet. Wow. You know, and I say, wow, because a lot more private equity funds are following their footsteps. So um, this is a huge, vast opportunity for companies, for individuals, for entrepreneurs. This is an opportunity to be sustainable, to make money. Um, as I'm, I've mentioned a number of times in this interview, is also an opportunity to do good, uh, to do well, um, and to do it in a more just, equitable way. Absolutely. And I can sense your optimism and enthusiasm. My um, middle daughter told me a word this morning. We do a word of the day little uh, game. And the word of the day is panglossian, which describes you perfectly. It's an optimist who stands slight naivete in the middle of chaos. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. That's I, I'm very, uh, very proud of. I think, I think you have to be. 100% agree. So last question and this could be professional or personal, and you've already given some advice you know, during the conversation. You mentioned you know, being proud, but I'm going to ask you specifically, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? You know, I, uh, I've worked with a number of wonderful, wonderful, very prominent individuals from President Obama to Al Gore, Hillary Clinton, or even um, Senator John Kerry, and, and I've always seen certain traits in all of them that um that that's probably what 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 that, that would be the advice i would give to people listening to us uh to me they are men and women that i greatly admire because they all share three things in common they are people that feel passion for what they do my mom used to say that if you are lucky enough to find a job you can be passionate about, you'll never have to work another day in your lifetime. 
And I completely agree with that. That is something that I always saw in each and every one of the people I just mentioned. They were so passionate about what they did. But they also, and that would be the second piece of advice, um, they all, um, we talked about pride, and that is very, very important. But there were also people that were willing to take risk and were not afraid of failure. And that, to me, is also something that I greatly admire in people that are trying to be successful in their endeavors and, and, uh, and do well. And lastly, I would say that every single one of the people I've mentioned tonight um, are all people that always found a way, always went out of their ways, I should say, to give back, to give back to their communities, to give back to their country, uh, to help others. They felt an obligation and a responsibility to do that because they believed that individual success does not exist. We make it when we make it always on the shoulders of, of many others that paved the way for us. And so that, that would be it. Those would be the three ideas I would share with you. I think it was Hillary Clinton that uh, had the concept of it takes a village. Absolutely. It takes a village and particularly in the uh, Latin community or the Indian community where we understand how important it is to have mentors, to have people that will support you along the way. Because without that, it, it, at least in our culture, it's not worth it. If you only do it for yourself, then um, it's not worth the effort. Well, Juan, I think that's a beautiful place to leave off. I really appreciate your time calling in from Spain, and I look forward to catching up with you soon. Great. Thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.